Welcome to a freer South Beach session, now no longer in the corporate shackles. We are going to do this the same way we've always done it, except hopefully a little bit better. And while we have been moved by your support, we need yet more of it. We need to plead with you for yet more of it, because during this phase, we are pumping all this content out. And I would say it's for free, but it's not for free. I'm hemorrhaging money right now. I am bleeding money. I go home every day and I see an account shrink and I'm trying to get us to a partner, but I don't want to do it in a hurry because I want you guys to follow us through this free agency. And I love the idea of pirate radio. So within that, I need you to rate, subscribe and review Levitard and Friends Podcast Network, uh, the Dan Levitard Show with Stu Gatz, all of the individual properties, Mystery Crate, South Beach Sessions and stupidity. If you've already done it, thank you. You will have your archives and it will feel just the same. No change. If you have not done it, I need you to do it now, please, because we need your help in supporting this thing as it floats along the pirate ship coming after everybody. But we need your help because we know what the army is behind us, but we need your help still now more than ever, really. So if you could check that out for us, if you could rate, subscribe and review, we would appreciate it. Here is Shane Battier today. Shane Battier, I've known for two decades, honest, vulnerable, one of the smartest guys that I've met in basketball or sports in general. Many years ago, some of you will remember, few of you will remember, but some of you will remember that many years ago when I was on a Sunday morning show on ESPN Radio at the very start, when I did it with my dog on Sunday mornings, a four-hour show, we had a rotating group of smart basketball players, Donald Foyle, John Amici, and Shane Battier, and we'd bring them on and we'd just talk about other stuff, not necessarily basketball, and the seeds were planted there for what the show would eventually become. So I've always enjoyed talking to Shane. You will find him surprisingly honest here. He will tell you how retirement uh, nearly ended in divorce for him and how his wife pulled him out of it with an uncommon strength. So you will get a side of Shane Battier that I don't think you've seen before. Let's get started with Shane Battier. Shane, what would you point to as sort of the challenges in your childhood that looking back on are some of the things that most shaped you into adulthood? I was lucky to be the odd man out. I know it's weird to say. Uh, growing up in a, in a biracial family back in 19, early 80s, uh, there, was, there weren't a lot of people like me who had a black dad, white mom. I grew up on uh, in a fairly well-to-do suburb, but I was the poor kid. I had the holes in my, in my roof. I had the hand-me-down clothes. I was a different race, a different color than all my friends. Never belonged. Never belonged. At the time when you're a kid, really hard. Really, really hard. You just want to fit in. But that fueled my competitiveness to be the best athlete, best basketball player I could be, so they couldn't keep me out. And uh, that was probably the defining attribute of, of my, my career, that I uh, wasn't the most talented. I was different, probably misunderstood. But um, I, I didn't allow them to keep me out. It's interesting because I've talked to Ricky Williams about this and in terms of that stuff, and it was not biracial for him. He was just viewed himself as too black for a white world and too white for a black world. And that makes you stronger fast. I got to imagine. I got to imagine that kind of, you said you were lucky enough to be the odd man out. Now I'm lucky. Well, I wasn't lucky at the time. Like I remember in, in third grade, one of my good friends came up to me and said, are you, are you an Oreo? Are you black on the outside and white, white on the inside? Cause I grew up in Birmingham and I spoke the way I spoke and I didn't know what that meant. And 
you know, when you're a kid and you feel alone, there's nothing worse. It's hard. It's hard now if you're, if you're an adult and you feel alone. But when you're a kid, man, that's hard. I couldn't process it. Where did you fit? <laughs> by myself. I became so scared I was going to offend somebody by being black, by being too white. Look, when I went south of Eight Mile in Detroit and played with the brothers in the police athletic league, I was the white kid from the suburb, right? And so, talk about a man without a country. I was I was a kid without a, a country, and so I became uh, super self sufficient. You know, this is something my parents couldn't even, couldn't help me with. How did you become strong? Where do you remember any of the details that were testing you, that strengthened you? Where you're like. I've had to become an adult faster than I wanted to. You guys have chosen to steal a piece of my childhood and my youth and my innocence. I got to grow up faster. The one thing that did save me, though, even though my parents couldn't identify with my racial identity crisis, was they were super supportive and super strong. And I remember as, as, a, as a first grader, I got in a fight at school because someone said something about my mom. And Sandy Battier is the toughest SOB you ever find. And I, she came home. She's like, why are you fighting about me? Like, I don't care what anyone says. Like, let them think what they want to think. Like, I know I'm, I'm cool. I'm a good mom. I'm a good person. And, you know, that was a lesson I learned when I was in first grade that, like, it doesn't matter what people say about me and, and, and what their perception is about me. I had to be authentic. I had to be myself. And if that wasn't good enough for people, uh, you know, screw them. <laughs> when, did, when did you sort of arrive in terms of comfortable in your own skin? Is there an age or a time? Is it before Duke? Is it at Duke? I would say late high school. I, I finally became comfortable in who I was. I had a lot of friends, but I wouldn't say I was I was intimate with a lot of people. I always kept my distance. Um, I had I had pseudo celebrity because I was a pretty good basketball player, nationally ranked, and, and being re- recruited. And so there were a lot of isolating things about just my life in general. And I I, I kept to myself and just just grinded by myself. That's what that's what I did. But you know, it's got to a point where I used to eat lunch by myself because I, I was afraid of offending people. That's, you know, screw it. Like I'm, I'm a, I'm, I'm a good dude and I'm smart and I work hard. And if people don't like me because of my zip code or, or cause the tint of my skin, like they don't need to be in my, my world. And so I became super selfish about who I surrounded myself with. And it, it really allowed me to just be a better judge of character. And it made all the difference in the world and sort of release me. How does the discomfort of all of that play out differently if not for being super confident that you were great at basketball and could just bust people up? If I take away the confidence that comes from sports and make you go through all of that, how does it play out differently? That's the irony, Dan. I, I, I wasn't confident. I suffered from the imposter syndrome my, my entire life, even in my, in my NBA career. I never thought I was good enough. Never. Never. And that just drove me to the end of the earth. And so, listen, I'm either gonna, I'm either gonna make it or I'm gonna die trying. You know, burning the ships, <laughs> whatever metaphor you want to, you want to use. I never felt, I never felt I belonged. But I knew if I was good enough, they couldn't keep me out. And so, I was terrified of never getting to a level where I'd be good enough, where they could exclude me. And and it was, it was a cutthroat mentality that I had. It's not something I could ever explain, and it's it's hard for me to explain even now. But I just wanted to be so good and succeed that they, that no one could keep me out of anywhere. Anywhere. Where and when was the imposter syndrome worst? Varying levels. Obviously, growing up in the mixed household that I was uh, growing up in, I felt like I was an imposter every time I, I went to school and I was trying to be with my, with my white friends. And here I was in Birmingham, Michigan. When I go to 1300 Bobian for the Police Athletic League, I was an imposter trying, trying to be this, this tough 
you know, black kid from the, from the suburbs. You know, I go to Detroit Country Day, which is, you know, a well-to-do school, a very, very elite private high school. I was an imposter there because I was the poor kid from, you know, east side of Birmingham. I go to Duke and I'm, I'm going to school with heads, the, the kids of heads of states and get to the NBA. I'm just, I'm this kid who's kind of slow, kind of, kind of unathletic, but for some reason I, I'm on the floor at the end of games. So I never really stopped. Never really stopped, you know, and even as a 42 year old man now, you know, transitioning into to more bu- a business role and um, I don't have the pedigree that, that the other 42 year olds have and the, and the life experience of, of business that others do, but <laughs> the imposter syndrome has never stopped. It's just, it's just evolved. So help me understand the most confident basketball version of you exists. What year, what time, what space? Oh man. I was most confident my senior year in college. It wasn't until my senior year that I said, you know what, I got a shot to be, you know, a, a pretty good pro. And I was lucky to to be a ball boy for the Detroit Pistons when I was in high school and middle school. And I saw what a pro was. I was lucky to see guys like Grant Hill, Don Reed, Lindsey Hunter, Jerome Williams. Those guys are pros and they would work. And so I just said, oh my gosh, like if I want to be a pro, like I got I to gotta be like these guys. These guys are just unbelievable. So I, I knew the work. And so the work didn't scare me, but just the, the talent scared me. And it wasn't until my senior year when I was finally really confident in myself and said, you know what? I can do this. I can do this. And I, I, I just want to do it. I, I think I can make some noise here. Is that the and first time? Is that the first time you think you can actually make a living, a career out of it? Or did you had to have thought that before that, right? Right before that year, I can do this for a living. This could be my life's work. I thought I could get there, but that wasn't good enough. I never looked at it as like getting drafted as, as, as the end all be all. It was playing 10 years. I wanted to play 10 years. Cause I knew if I played 10 years, I could do anything I wanted after I played, after I got done playing. So many people were so happy to get in the, in the front door and just have the opportunity. And that was cool. That was all part of the journey, but I want, I want to stick and I, and I wanted to make a name and, and I wanted to be a difference maker. And so that, that was my mindset. But like my senior year, I said, yeah, I can, I can do this. And I can do this for a long time. How jarred were you by the level of competition? Because you were one of the best college basketball players there were that year. And you weren't paling compared to anybody coming out of school. So you get to the league and boom, what's the shock? What's the culture shock? And what's the on-court shock? Because you were playing early, right? You were playing for a bad team, but you were playing right away. 40 minutes, my, my rookie year. <laughs> I averaged the most points and most minutes my rookie year. And, you know, it was funny. I got drafted by the Memphis Grizzlies. It was the first year they had moved from Vancouver. At Duke, you know, we won 131 games and lost 15, which was a record in the four-year period. I get to Memphis, and they had the lowest winning percentage of the four North American sports. So literally, they were the worst franchise in North America. <laughs> and so you're talking about culture shock. And, you know, here I was, Duke boy. You know, saying, "Come on, guys, we just gotta believe, and we gotta, we gotta stick together." And you know, it's one for all, all for one, and all, all the, uh, the stuff that made Duke so great, and, and you know, the looks and the words I got from you know some of the crusty veterans in that locker room were like, "Duke boy, you know, shut the hell up, sit down." And so, under understanding that look, not everyone has the experience that I had playing for the greatest coach of all time, with Coach K, and then going to Duke University. And, and appreciating that and appreciating that, that people are different. And, you know, I was lucky to play with Pau Gasol, who was fresh, literally fresh off the plane and didn't speak a lick of English. I look at him now. I'm so proud of him. But like he didn't know American culture. And together, you know, we, we turned the Grizzlies into a playoff contender. Three straight years of, of the playoffs after after our second second year together. 
And, uh, and so that was the biggest shock, just how to develop culture, how to develop a team in a, in a high pressure situation, like, like an NBA locker room. Who are some of the guys I've asked you this before, a form of it before, and you have described it as your father's strength, grown man strength. Who are the guys you get to the league and bang, you're bouncing against these bodies and you're like, holy shit, this dude is strong. <laughs> yeah. Never forget Jamal Mashburn. Of all of all players, he's the first guy I thought about. Like he he just was like, just you know, this is back in the day when they used to post up like the, the the small forwards, and so I'm in there just banging against this guy, and I'm just this this wiry guy. You know, I thought I was I was pretty strong, but I I didn't feel like I could do anything against this guy. I couldn't move him at all. Jamal Mashburn was was a man, but then like you you know you play against real real trees. You know, I, I think I'm the only person to to ever take a, a charge. Uh, from Shaq and Yao Ming and live to tell about it, you know, and uh, literally <laughs> That's Shaq terrible. threw me like, That's terrible. He threw me like 10 feet in the air and I got the charge, but that was the dumbest thing I ever did. In my career. Um, <laughs> what are you thinking? What are you doing? I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, I, you know, sometimes things just happen so fast. You, you don't have time to actually rationally think about it, which in that case I didn't, but uh it's a good story now. And, ya- and Yao's stronger, correct? Yao, because Shaq talks about Yao's strength that way. Yao was, he was such a, such a unique player. He, you couldn't move him. I mean, literally like in practice, you know, you would just like, like push on him. And it was like trying to like knock over your dad. And Yao had a great sense of humor. If you, if you were really, really trying to box him out, sometimes he would laugh at you. Just be like, ha, 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 ha. Very, you know, very funny. Uh, but yeah, yeah. What, what a great teammate. He, he's like, he's the best. He's the best. So could you have imagined, like, if I go back into your past and I'm like, okay, here it goes, Shane, you're going to be at the end of a very long career. It's going to be Tim Duncan in the post and it's going to be the finals and you need to keep him out of there and he's going to miss a bunny, but you're go ahead, have, have at it. You would have said what to me if at any point along the line, I had said to you, that's where it's going to end up. I would have said, uh, how in the hell did you get there? <laughs> you know, that well, first of all, that play was—I will never ever take credit for that play. Yeah, he uh, missed. He but, missed, but you were there. You were there. You were under him. You know, you talk about the greatest power forward of all time, and uh, you know, one thing I was—I was really good at in my entire career was I, I was annoying. I was—I was like that gnat that was just like kind of buzzing by your ear, and then and, you know, it didn't affect how you did things, but just enough to take your attention away. And I think that was uh, the the determining factor of of that play, but to play an NBA finals, you know, looking back at my career, it's silly. I mean, I laugh, you know, when when you go through it again, I was so worried about being an imposter that I failed to stop and really enjoy it and and say, gosh, isn't this, isn't this cool? Like, man, never, never, never. Like you, not even at the end, you never, well, at the end, you were probably having uh, a good deal of doubt because your shot was off and you've told us the story before the, the game that you hit seven threes, it was seven, right? That you were shooting, you were shooting elsewhere. You were shooting off to your right. I think you said aiming off to your right because your shot was so broken. So broke. And that was uh, an interesting, interesting period of my time. I'd never been that bad for that long ever. And, and all the, the thoughts of, of self-doubt. And here I am, 34 years old, thinking, am I, am I too old? Is this the end for me? 
if, if so, this is really undignified and not the way I, wa I wanted to go out. And so we were in, the, in that, that state of mind. You'll try anything just to get out of it. You know, I, 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 I empathize with, uh, with with Joe Boo and Major League Baseball because, you know, Major League, uh, the movie, because you're just trying to find anything that works, anything to, to get you going. And for me, it was like, ah, all my shots are kind of floating to the to the right, kind of like a like a fade in golf. So I'm just going to aim more left. And it worked. <laughs> so I didn't question it's it. so stupid for one of the smartest players ever it's one of the dumbest things i've ever heard i don't understand how it works i don't understand how you try it i don't understand how many inches to the right were you aiming that it was ending up like how how off were you what are we talking about there in terms of fractions and space we're talking a good four inches we're talking a good four inches. How? Is, so Shane, stupid. how? Shane, how? I don't, had that, that had never happened before? That You'd never had to make that adjustment before? You know, not that adjustment. Like, as a shooter, you make all these micro adjustments throughout the entire season. For me, sometimes it was, um, if, if I, if I point my toes towards the basket after I shoot, it's going in. Another time, and you, if you watch the video, I combined two of my favorite, uh, micro changes the double bounce after the shot i shot the ball and i hopped twice don't ask me why it's like it was a superstitious thing but every time i thought if i jumped twice after i released the ball it would go in so i combined shoot to the left and a double bunny hop after the jumper and i make six of eight so i'm not going to question it it worked I knew it wasn't a forever fix, but for, for such a smart guy, though, the idea that superstition was helping you for someone who just chewed up the analytics, who was just absorbing data at every turn. It really is sort of God's laughing at plans. The idea that the thing that fixed it for you in the finals was just, oh, fuck it. I'm just going to try it this way. Yeah. Dan, you're, you're giving me way too much credit, man. When you're in this world, you you take whatever advantage you can get, how, no, matter, no matter how stupid it is, and you, you use it till it dies. So explain this to me, though. Was there no time where you were happy when you were when you have your regret about not enjoying it more, not appreciating it when you were in it? What represents the happiest year? Not the end of it when you get the championship and it's fulfilling the process of the year. The happiest one for Shane Battier was they were all great. Uh, you know, I was I was a happy guy and I was appreciative of living my dream. So even though like I, I question whether I belonged. I enjoyed the hell out of my career and I enjoyed, you know, you enjoy the misery of the grind, right? You know, as someone, you understand the process and you feel fulfilled and you feel like you're, you're trying to create something bigger. And that's, that's the happiness. It's not joy. It's not joy. There, there, yeah. There were great games where you, you scored 20 or you hit a big shot and you're joyful, but you know, you're always banged up. You're always beat up. You know, you're pissed at the coach cause he, he's not getting, not calling your play. You know, you're, you're, you're always tired, you're cranky, but that's joy, man. man that's happiness. And I, that's what I missed. So I missed the grind. It's a kind of a masochistic happiness and fulfillment that you get as a pro athlete that uh, it's, it's, it's hard to explain, but it's the, the thing I miss the most. Explain it to the person from the outside who's saying, well, retirement must be lovely. You can then be lazy. You could drink all the beer that you want and just sit around. Explain to me what it is that's happening there where the thing that you miss is specifically the pain and the work. The singular focus that you have to have to get to that level. You can't understate how how much it takes to get to that point of the highest level of professional sports. And, you know, you dedicate yourself, you sacrifice so much in your life, your family, your free time, your, your health, your happiness 
for that journey, for that goal. And so that's all you know. You don't know the other side. And so while you're nearing the end and you say, oh, that, that's going to be nice to drink a lot of beer and play golf every day, you truly don't understand the work and have the perspective of, of how hard it was and what you actually went through to get there. And it's almost impossible to replicate. It's impossible to replicate. And, and you walk out of that locker room for the last time. And at first it's great, but you miss that singular focus, that thing that just gnaws at your soul that pushes you more than anything else could ever push you in your, in your imagination. Most athletes I've talked to, when they talk about what they've missed, they say it's the teammates, the locker room, the camaraderie. Were you too much of a loner in childhood for that to be? I'm sure you missed that as well, but you're around it some. But does your loner status in childhood make it so that you don't miss that as much as you miss the actual grind? No, I, I miss the locker room. There's nothing, there's nothing like the locker room, nothing like the bus trip. You know, I, I tell people, you know, the NBA is no different than an AAU trip when I was 13 years old. You know, we told the same fart jokes, told the same boob jokes, you know, just that the money and the, and, and the, the cars and the, the women were, were better in the NBA, right? <laughs> you know, the locker room is such an amazing place because there's nowhere to hide, literally. We spend more time with the, the guys in the locker room than we do our own families during the year. I literally see these guys in their most vulnerable state, you know, stark ass naked every single day in the showers. And, and so like, it's a vulnerable place. There's nowhere to hide. There's no BS and it's refreshing. It's hard. It's vulnerable, it's all, but it's authentic. And if you're not authentic, guess what? You're not going to last. And that's sort of what I miss about the other side. There's not that immediate ability to say, you know what? You're bullshit, dude. Like LeBron, you're bullshit. Like get back on defense. <laughs> you can't say that to anybody anymore. Right. right. And, you know, so absolutely I missed the locker room, you know, and even though guys looked at me like I was like a dork and probably think he knew everything, which, which I, I did, there was a love and a respect that grew out of that. Uh, and um, I, I do miss it. Barkley has the great quote, uh, the locker room, it's misogynistic, it's racist, it's homophobic, and I miss it so much because it's honest. There is no disputing. When you're talking about not being able to hide, you don't often get in group settings that kind of honesty. And furthermore, athletes are so different. You must have seen this in broadcasting where athletes like criticism, like coaching, their confidence becomes this steel because you can't get to where you are unless you are those things. And then you go into broadcasting and what you see is a bunch of media members who are vastly more insecure than anything you just came from. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, ball don't lie. If you walk in that locker room and you can't help us win, guess what? You don't have a place in this locker room. And that's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of being a competitor. That's the beauty of that process, which weeds out the weak. And only the strong are there at the end and the guys who can play. And there's there's something noble and, and honorable about that. And no matter where, where you come from, who your folks were, what you look like, can you play? Can you help us win? And that's all that matters. Did you ever have any confrontations with LeBron? Because the Heat culture is not one that minds confrontation. Pat Riley tells the stories of Alonzo Mourning confronting him, and it's just F you, F you, F this, and just teach me something. If it's going to be F you, make sure you teach me something. And then what ends up happening is Zoe, you know, they've lost to the Knicks again. Riley's at his desk sobbing, and Zoe comes in in his uniform and's like, go fucking talk to your team, finish your job do your job, Riley. Like, uh, you, can you speak to that? There are ways to challenge guys and we all need to be challenged. I don't care how great you are. Even LeBron, D Wade, CB, they have bad days and they need their, you know, their ass kicked every now and then 
by people who, who care, you know, and, and it was never about like you're letting us down or it was, no, we expect, we expect more, give us more, you know, like your famous rant, give me more, and that's all you can hope for. You know, that's, that's the difference between that, that terrible Memphis Grizzlies team that I played in and the Miami heat was like, no, we, we want it all. We want your best every day. And, um, you know, luckily we had, we had the gravitas where we could pull it out from each other. That wasn't the only difference. There were a few other differences in terms yeah, of roster yeah. uh, construction yeah. and some other things. Coaching, arena fans. Yeah, the, yeah, the whole thing. Few differences. The whole thing. Uh, <laughs> can you explain what the untethered retiring, you're a guy who has it together, okay? Uh, I remember talking about this with Robert Smith. Robert Smith descended into alcoholism because, not because, but in part because he thought that he was uniquely equipped to leave behind at 30 years old the sports identity, the masculinity. He was interested in medicine. Everybody was always talking about how smart he was. And then he retires, and he's totally untethered, doesn't have to answer to an alarm clock, doesn't have to answer to anybody, and finds himself very early throwing up into a bucket next to his bed because his identity is past tense now. He has grieved who he's been all his life. You're uniquely qualified to handle retirement. You are a smart, successful, evolved man. Can you explain to me the difficulties of leaving behind that? I handled retirement transition pretty poorly. And I think there are a few factors that, that went into that. You become so self-sufficient, you're not used to asking anybody for help. Everybody in that locker room looks at themselves as a self-made millionaire, right? Even though they have teams around them and, and people and, and handlers, whoever it may be, at the end of the day, they know, like, look, I need to make those plays. And so there's a self-reliance that is developed and not only developed, but it's rewarded. Because if you show weakness at any point, if you say, hey, this guy needs help, He's not strong enough. He's out. And we are all just petrified of someone taking our dream, someone taking our, our life by someone who will sacrifice and be self-reliant. So you become really incapable of asking for help in anything. When you die a, a, a death, you know, and, and hopefully that you, you handle your transition uh, uh, you know, better than a lot of right. my pro athlete brothers. But it's, it's always the fight for relevance. And there's always that fear of like, well, what, what, what if the phone doesn't ring? What, what does that mean? And as an athlete, and as you know, one of the most popular media personalities, Dan, like you have metrics that you can look at every single day. How many people clicked on my link? How many points did I score? Did we win last night? You know, how many new subscribers do we have? And so whether we like it or not, we judge, that's how we judge ourselves. And when there's not that metric and when there's not that scoreboard, we are rudderless. We don't have a captain and it's terrifying. And you throw in the fact that we don't know how to ask for help or even who to ask for help from. You see where so many guys get in trouble. And, uh, you know, for me, it, it took an amazing amount of soul searching. You know, luckily I had a great wife who said, uh, I'm going to give you three options. You can hear three numbers. You can call the Marriott, you can call your, your attorney, <laughs> or you can call this, this wonderful wow. life coach I found for wow. you. Wow. Excellent. Ah, nice. That's I'm, great though. That's a, that is great support there like it. that. I, and you must've gone to a real dark place to get to that point. Did you think it would be different? Did you think you were uniquely yeah. qualified to handle yeah. all of that shit, that it would be fine? Yes, absolutely. As misguided as it was, I thought I was different. I thought, man, I went to Duke, and I, I, I read books, and I know the horror stories. I got, I got this. I, and I was so misguided. And 
again, I, I was afraid to, to, to show vulnerability and I was afraid to show that I don't have all the answers. And so I was trying to fake it. And luckily I didn't do anything that was destructive to my family or, or, or to myself ultimately, but I went to a dark place. I went to a super dark place that I'm glad I went to it. And I think I'm a better husband I'm a better father. I'm a better friend. I'm a, I think I'm a better businessman. I have more perspective on who I am and, and what my journey was, but there were things I, I, I probably could have done better along the way to, to mitigate that dark place. How freeing, though, because you have the midlife crisis. Basically, what you're describing is the identity being stripped from you in midlife and how freeing to visit the darkness and realize, no, wait, if I share this vulnerability with my wife, if I don't have to be totally self-reliant all the time, then I can get the joys of actually sharing. I don't have to be doing it by myself and that sort of alters your entire life perspective. In fact, I would imagine that it would help you thaw the imposter syndrome. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And your listeners now are probably like, oh, poor little rich boy. <laughs> There's no sympathy for a guy who played 13 years in the NBA, won titles, and, and has a pretty high Q score. There's no sympathy. And that's not a here nor there. I don't blame people. I'm, I'm not sad. For well, they, that they can't understand. This is a thing we, a conversation Stu Gatz and I have all the time where. Money doesn't buy you happiness. The lack of money can put a down payment on unhappiness, but money does not do much in the way of soothing when you've had it for a long time and you're crawling through the shit. It's nice to have, but unless it's helping you get the life coach or the therapist who could then get you on a better path, you're not coming home and being like, wow, I really love my theater setup. Yeah, exactly. But the one, the one commonality between all of us, all of our listeners, you, myself, Stu Gotts, Mikey in the studio, there will come a point where you step away from a role that you've had, that you've identified with, whether that's a mother who is now an empty nester sending their baby to college, whether you're a worker on a factory line and it's time for retirement, whether you're a school teacher and it's time, whatever it is, there, there comes an end to what you've dedicated your life to. And we all go through that process. That's what I found. Just talking to everybody. You think you're alone. You're not alone. Every person in the world goes through this, just at different levels. And you realize it's okay. You know, you have a few beers with people and it makes you feel better that, man, I'm not, I'm not alone in this world. And we all go through it. How long did it take you to go from darkness to light? And where and how did you do that? Life Coach helps. And how reluctant were you to do Life Coach? How reluctant were you to, no, I don't want to just share all my shit with somebody. Well, I also had the backdrop of my brother passing away from a heroin overdose. He was a, a football player at Duke University, one of the smartest guys I knew, and uh, unfortunately succumbed to uh, uh, post-traumatic uh, syndrome from concussions. Had really bad concussions, had to retire, and opioids led to his demise. And so dealing with that, the year after I retired, and all the things that went into our relationship and searching for my identity. So I had a lot of, a lot of shit going through my mind, but you get to a point where you say, this is, this isn't going to be, I can't live like this because luckily I did have people around me who told me, Shane, you're being an asshole, like a real asshole. And I, I didn't think I was. Well, you were unhappy though. You're on, that's what, that's how it manifests, right? That's, yeah. that, you don't yeah. even realize it, but that's how it manifests. You're unhappy. And then you project this onto others in ways that you don't even see. Yeah. And so when I heard that enough, I said, this is not, not sustainable, not sustainable for anybody, mostly me. And so, you know, I've always been open to trying new things. I'll try anything once. And uh, luckily, 
working with a therapist and a coach, it spoke to me and uh, figured a lot, of, a lot of crap about myself that I never even considered. And so um, now I'm, I'm like, Mr. Like, hey, how can I be better? Well, I'm, I'm Mr. Self-discovery. So it's opened up a whole new world to me where people are probably sick of me talking about it. I'm on the outside, obviously, and I don't know the intimacies, but I've always admired the way that you talk about your relationship with your wife, the way that you talk about your wife, for her to get to the point where you've got three options. Can you sort of explain to us how it is that she helped you through this? Because she knows you, I would imagine, better than anybody. And she, if she's not available to you here, I'm guessing that you might still be dealing with some of this stuff. Yeah. I mean, she was uh, the, my first girlfriend in seventh grade and I married her. She was my first kiss and I married her. So she's seen it all. Right. And so uh, again, I did not have a big circle. My circle was very tight, but she was, she was in it from the very, very beginning. So the people who are in my inner circle, I, I, I value as much as my own opinion about how I'm acting, how I'm doing things. So I'm very fortunate. My, my circle is small, but it's, it's very loyal, very smart, and they care. And so what can you tell us? And I'm not looking to get into an area that's too uncomfortable, but the keys to a successful marriage. Because as I've said, like I really admire that you chose someone when you were in seventh grade and that person lived by your side the entire time and saw all of the ugly and loves you anyway. And, you know, you probably have never been more vulnerable than you are there, even with all of your reluctances on vulnerability. What could you tell people that you would give as life advice as it regards having a happy partnership with somebody? <laughs> you got to be able to laugh. We have a, a lot of laughs and we, we've never taken ourselves too seriously throughout this whole process. And in, in a world where it's really easy to take yourself way too seriously, we never did. Wine helps. Wine <laughs> goes a long ways, especially once you start having babies. Um, but mostly just finding someone who you enjoy spending time with. It sounds corny, but like, you know, we enjoy laughing at stupid movies and, and laughing at, the, at the, the silly things in life. And we don't take anything too seriously, but you know, we're, we're able to have tough conversations, which is sounds simplistic, but the ability to say, Hey babe, let's, let's go to lunch. Let's, we got we to talk about some things. It goes a long ways. It goes a long ways. And you nip a lot of the the small crap in the bud before it becomes big things. And we're not, we're not perfect by any, by any means. I'm messy and, and unavailable emotionally a lot of the times, uh, which I work on every single day, but it's never good enough. Uh, <laughs> but we always want to make each other better for each other. Is there anything that can be said that you learn from losing your brother that way? Or is it just shit and garbage and grief and just how to cope with grief and it's just life sucks sometimes. That was a, a, a whole few months that were a blur. Um, I didn't know he had a problem until it was too late. So you beat yourself up over the small signs that you, you, you may miss that you, you sometimes get too busy with life to, to notice. Those are the regrets that you have when you lose someone in, in, in that manner. You gain a tremendous em amount of empathy for people who have you know, much deeper problems than your own. You know, my brother was going through some really, really tough stuff that I didn't discover until uh, he was gone. And reading his old emails and notes that he wrote, it makes you love a little, a little deeper. And it makes you more in tune with people you care about a little better. And for small clues, anything that, that may say, you know what, I'm, I'm in trouble. I need, I need help. And so lots of regrets, obviously. But I'm proud of my brother. And, uh, you know, he and I used to 
used to have a competition called the GB, who was the greater baddie. And uh, we would fight over every little thing. Who had the better garbage pal kids? Who who's a better basketball player? Who's a better tennis player? Who's a better kickball player? And uh, you know, look, looking back at it, you know, he was the GB a lot more than I ever gave him credit for. I can't imagine that you have very many professional regrets outside of what you said, which is just sort of looking back and wishing that while you were in it, you appreciated it more. Would there be anything else that you would put? on the list of professional regrets. And as of, as another question, I would ask you what you're proudest of, because I am curious in your career, what you look at and say, yeah, you know what? I've, I've, I've got a real deep pride about being that. Dan, if I could go back and do it again, I would not have stepped foot inside the three point line. I would have shot 15 threes a game. <laughs> no, you know, I'm in analytics now, but like, like the math is just silly. We were doing that. it dumb. Shane, for all the smart people in basketball, yeah. it is funny to think how stupid everybody was. Hey, throw yeah. it into the post. See what you could do with the inefficient shot. And I was a good post player. I took pride in, like, I have a jump hook. I got a left-hand hook. I got a right-hand hook. Like, I worked on that stuff. But, like, looking back, I wasted so much time, like, perfecting my step-back jumper and, like, going between my legs off a of pick-and-roll, like, just wasted like years you were so dumb shane one of the smartest basketball players ever if you just know why did you not see earlier than everyone else that there's a shot worth more than all the other shots and it's the only one i should be taking i was a sheep (laughs) i was a sheep man no more i'm no longer a sheep (laughs) it's too Um, late so i would have shot no literally i would have tried to shoot 15 threes a game and see (laughs) see where that had taken me um but it was pretty good um what am i most proud of you know, I'm most proud of just being on the floor at the end of the games. You know, I was always proud of myself on being a guy who went when stuff was crazy. I always kept my head. I always made sound plays. You know, it wasn't always successful, but it was always it was always the right play. I didn't make boneheaded mistakes when the pressure was highest. And um, my coaches and my teammates always trusted me to be on the floor in crunch time and in, in NBA Finals games at the end of the games. And, you know, I knew like when that wasn't an option anymore, that it was time for me to leave basketball. And uh, that, that's, that was really the the main factor in me saying, you know what, sayonara, it's time for the next thing. It has been a pleasure to talk to you over the last couple of decades. Thank you for making the time and thank you for always being someone who's illuminating. I do enjoy talking to you always. Dan, you, you bring it out, man. You're the man. I appreciate you. 